Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for how much you care and love for us, that you gave us your word to show us yourself in the word so that we can know you. Help us to get to know you as we read this section of the scripture and study it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Isaiah chapter 52, starting at verse 1. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion, put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for whenceforth there shall no more come unto you the uncircumcised or the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust, arise and sit down, O Jerusalem, loose yourself from the bands of your neck, O captive daughter of Zion, for thus saith the Lord, you have sold yourself for naught, you have, and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus saith the Lord God, my people went down aforetime into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrians oppressed them without cause. Now therefore, what have I here, saith the Lord, that my people is taken away for naught? They that rule over them make them howl, saith the Lord, and my name continually every day is blaspheming. Therefore my people shall know my name, therefore they shall know that in that day that I am he that doth speak, Behold, it is I. We're going to stop there because this is God speaking to his people. And it's kind of, an, kind of an interesting thing. He starts out with, awake, awake. And we've talked to several times when God repeats something, we want to pay attention. And this literally says, wake up, arouse yourself. All right, this isn't just the idea of waking up. It is actually getting out of bed and doing something. Okay, He's not just saying, wake up and you know lay there and fall back to sleep he's saying wake up and get moving one of the things i used to have to do to my kids when it was time to wake up get up i'm awake no you're not get up out of bed because <laughs> if you're not out of bed i'll be back up here in 10 minutes to get you out of bed so i would tell them they had to get up this is what this one is wake up get moving do something all right this is emphatic from god he's he's telling them Put on your strength. Be clothed with strength. This idea of put on, God uses this a lot, to be clothed. You know, we're to put on Christ, to be clothed with Christ in the New Testament. Here he's saying to Israel, be strong. God uses that term a lot to people. Be strong. Get up. Get, get ready. Be strong. And I think he has to do this because people generally, as a tendency, have a habit of being lazy. You know, even the most workaholic person can be lazy, has a tendency to be lazy if they're not motivating themselves. All right? They're no, usually motivated by the work and getting a goal out there. But if they have no goal, they can be just as lazy as anybody else. I took a day off on Monday and a holiday, and I literally, for the one time in probably two years, did nothing. I watched the movies. <laughs> and that's all I did all day long. And that's very rare for me, but this is the idea that he's saying. Get up, get doing something. And, you know, we do need rest. There's time for rest, but there's time to get up and do things. And we as people tend to like to just be lazy. And it's an easy thing. It's part of the sin nature. And he's telling Israel... Put on, your, put on strength. Get up. Do something. Be bold. And he's talking to Israel who's leading a sinful life at this time. So he's basically telling them, get up and stand for me. All right? Stand up for me. Quit being lazy. Quit following the idols. Quit worshiping everything but. And this is to us even as Christians. How many times do we just get lazy with God? Maybe we're busy with the world. We're going to work. We're doing everything. We're not spending time with God. We're not in prayer. We're not reading. We're not studying. We're not spending time in it with his people. And God says to us, get serious, get strong. Get serious for God. And it is so easy to play. Christians play a lot of times. Come to church, look like they're a Christian, and you meet them outside of church, and you go, this isn't the same person I saw in church. You sound just like the rest of the world. You're acting just like the rest of the world. And God's saying, Get serious with him. Because it's going to be critical. We're coming into a time in this world where if we're not for God 100%, we're going to be against him. We're in a place where if we have to be careful what we say, 
Because if we're not speaking what the world says and thinks, they criticize us. And it's going to get worse. It's not just going to be criticism in a, in a short period of time. It will literally be against the law to do what God says, to say what God says, to act the way God says. And we have already problems going on right now. If we say things are wrong, the world jumps down our throat. How dare you judge me? I'm not judging you. I'm telling you what God says. He says what you're doing is a sin. I'm not judging it. You're going to stand and fall before God. We still love them. We care for them. But we're, going to, we're not going to be silent to them and say, no, what you're doing is okay. Because that will take them straight to hell. We need to be strong. Living the way we're supposed to live for God. Which will mean that as the world looks at us, we're going to look strange. We're going to look weird. We're going to look like we're insane. Because we're not living the way the world lives. We don't do the things the world does. Because we're living for God. And this will make us stand out. Just as it did in the first century. First century Christians were very different from the rest of the world. They cared for one another. They helped one another. They helped the lost. They helped the ones who hated them. They, they helped the ones who were trying to kill them. And people would look at them and go, on, what, what is wrong with these strange people? But they turned the world upside down. If we truly want to see revival, we need to be those kind of people. They're going to stand up for God and say, this is right. God says to do it. This is wrong. I'm not going to. And we don't really have to say a thing. Just not doing what the world does convicts them. Because when we are a Christian, we bring God into the midst of everything we do, and we don't have to say a word to get the world mad at us. All right? All we're going to say is, no, I'm not going to do that. And it can be that simple and that, and that blunt, and people going, well, what's wrong? You think you're better than me? You're not going to do these things? And that's the way they will respond to us. God in their midst brings conviction. There's times when I've gone into certain places and people have looked at me like, you know, what's wrong with you? You're judging us. And I haven't said a word. I've just walked into the room where something was going on and people get upset because God came into the room with me. All right? And that's true of all of us as Christians. We bring God into the situation and if we're close to God and he's right there, people will get convicted. They will feel upset. We don't have to say a word to them and they're going, oh, gee, you know, God's in this room. And, you know, they don't even know it's God, really. They just, they, they associate it with you. You know, you're, you're, you're convicting me just by being here. Be strong for God. Live for God. And then we'll speak words, which will confirm to them that, they, that they're going to be convicted. We do it in love. We care for them. We love them. We're not trying to hurt people. But when we say, God says it's wrong. And they're going, they don't like to hear that. We as Christians don't always like to hear that what we're doing is wrong. And we know better. And yet we will sometimes react when, when we hear that something's wrong. So we know that the world isn't going to like it. So it says, be strong, O Zion. And we've said this before. But there's a lot of people here that are fairly new. Zion is just another name for Jerusalem or Israel. It's a poetic name for Jerusalem. So it says, be strong, O Jerusalem. Put on your beautiful garments. God gives us garments of praise as his children and says, as far as he's concerned, we are beautiful. And, you know, I heard a pastor the other day saying, and it was, I never thought about it in this way, but it sounded so good. He goes, God is always watching us. And he says, some people get scared by that. He goes, but I want to tell you that God loves you so much he can't take his eyes off you. And that made a very interesting statement to me. Because it is that love that people have. You know, when, when somebody is so in love that they spend all their time gazing at their sweetheart and just can't wait to see their sweetheart. And when he said that, it made me really think about it. God loves people. And his love is so much that he's always longing to watch us, to see us. And that's a big difference when you think about it, that he's loving us so much he wants to look at us not that he's looking at us for something, to, waiting for us to do something wrong. And that's the way people look at God a lot of times. 
oh, God's just watching me. He's, God's just waiting for me to do something wrong so he can hit me over the head with a baseball bat or, or throw the, the lightning bolt or whatever picture you have of God, you know. God is not looking for that way, especially at his children. Now, he loves the world, so he's not trying to do that. He will judge. He will punish. But for his children, he's looking like most parents for the opportunity to bless. With my kids, I was always looking for opportunities to give them rewards and blessings. Now, unfortunately, it also meant discipline every once in a while. But I was looking to do things. I always wanted to do what was good and bless them. And that's God looking at us. He's not up there with his, with his belt in his hand, his rod in his hand, just waiting to beat us over the head for everything we do wrong. He's up there saying, ah, finally they did something right. I can give them a blessing and, and give them great honor. You know, yes, the discipline comes, but he's really looking for those blessing opportunities. And he's telling Jerusalem, put on your beautiful garment. Put on your best attire. Why is he talking to Israel this way? Because Israel was called God's bride, his wife. He called Israel his wife. Jesus is looking at, at us as his bride, the church as his bride, which means he's waiting for us to put on that garment that is for the wedding, wedding garment, and he says, there's my bride. Any, any man who stood at the bottom of that aisle waiting for his wife to come down the aisle <laughs> knows what that, that look is about. When you just, you see your bride coming down the aisle, you're so much in love, she's all de dressed up in her, in her gown, and you're struggling to stay standing. <laughs> yeah. And Jesus looks at us with that kind of love. You know, that he says, here's my bride. Beautiful song I heard, it's, it's titled, Jesus, Get Your Bride. And, it's, and this whole purpose of the song is, Jesus is just waiting for the Father to tell him, go get your bride, it's time. Go, go take your bride out of that world and bring your bride to the marriage supper. You know, and this is, this is what's going on here. He's talking about it. Put on your beautiful garment, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for therefore shall no more come into you the uncircumcised or the unclean. This is talking about either the millennial kingdom or the, the new heaven and new earth. But either way, it's the same, you know, going to be the same thing. But in the millennial kingdom, Jesus reigns in Jerusalem. And the entire world comes to him. And he says, no, it's not, going to be the un it's not going to be the unrighteous. It's not going to be the unclean. It's going to be all the righteous coming. For a thousand years, Jesus reigns on this world. Then he, then he destroys everything, and he creates a new heaven and new earth with a new Jerusalem and no evil. I can't even imagine that. <laughs> the millennial kingdom is going to be pretty close. It's going to be... It's going to be purified, it's going to be, he's going to rule with an iron rod and keep things good. People's lifespans are going to be re-expanded. Re Many people will live for hundreds of years during the millennial kingdom, leading up to the new heaven and new earth. But Jerusalem still be in the center of everything. So we have this beautiful picture of him talking about it. In verse 2 it says, shake off yourself the dust, rise up and sit down, O Jerusalem. Loose yourself from the bands of your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. So here he's talking about them being in captivity. He says, you know, it's kind of an interesting statement. Uh, he says, shake yourself from the dust, arise, and then sit down. <laughs> All right? But I, I kind of picture this. They're in captivity. They're in subjection. They're not, they're not sitting down. They are been fallen down. And he says, get up. Sit down and sit down properly. Quit, quit laying around rolling in the dust. All right, so this is him saying, sit in victory. And sitting is very important. When Jesus went to the cross, he died for our sins, he was resurrected, and then he was ascended into heaven after 40 days, and he sits at the right hand of the Father in perfect rest. When you're sitting, you're saying, everything's over. I am done for the day. You know, you've worked hard all day long and you just want to sit down and relax. You know, the day is over. I'm done. You know, some of us don't know what that's like <laughs> very often. But you know, this is what he's telling them. Shake yourself from the dust. You've been laying in the dust too long. You know, you've, been, you've been in bondage. You've been a slave. You've fallen in the dirt. Quit rolling around in the dirt. <laughs> 
get up, sit down, O Jerusalem. Then it says, loose yourself from the bands around your neck. Literally, he is talking about the idea of being shackled with a collar around their neck. The Assyrians and the Babylonians did this. They would, they would put people into collars and drag them. And if they were really not nice to you, they'd put, they'd put a ring in your nose and drag you by your nose until the ring came out. And then they'd put the ring around your neck. <laughs> All right? They, they were not nice people. They were not nice people, especially for the kings they would do this thing and drag them along you know, with a hook and chain on their nose and drag them around. And if you fell down, you know how sensitive the nose is. You didn't stay down, you either didn't stay down very long or you had a very deformed nose. And they would, they would then put the band around you. This is a serious thing. He says, get up, get rid of the band. You know, for us as, us as Christians, this is where we're supposed to be. Before we're saved, we are bonded in bondage to sin, fallen down, collapsed, no power to survive from sin. And if you can remember, you know, if before you were saved, how much burden the sin was on you, you know, and, and dragging you down. And he says, stand up. Get rid of that burden. Put it on Christ. You know, and this is the whole purpose of coming to Christ. We come to the cross. We admit that we're a sinner. And he takes the sin from off of us, puts on white garments upon us of purity, and says, okay, you're my child. You are free. Come sit with me. We go about our life with, in faith rest. We just rest in God. And that's a great thing. When we can just rest in him, how can we rest in him? Because he's sovereign. He's the ruler. He's got everything in control. Even when it looks to me like nothing's in control, God's in control. He has a plan. He has an idea for me. He wants us to be victorious. And I said this a couple weeks ago in service. To be victorious means we have to be in battle. We have to be tested to be victorious. You're not victorious if you haven't gone through the battle and won. All right? And the description I had the other day was, you know, every sports team at the beginning of the year is undefeated. All right? They're also unvictorious. They're zero and zero. They have not been tested. They might be the the championship team by the end of the year after they've gone through an entire season of being tested. But when they start the season, they're neither, they're, they're neither defeated nor undefeated. They have not been tested. God does not take his children and say, okay, we're going to leave you at zero and zero. You are going to be victorious if you lead on, lean on me. And he says, I'm going to put you into those trials. So when we face trials... In the New Testament, it says, count it all joy when you enter into various trials. How do we count it as joy? Because God, if we trust in him, is going to bring us victorious through the trial. So my joy is not in the trial per se. My joy is where I'm going to come out. I don't know how many people played sports, but I used to love playing sports, and it was fun to win. Sometimes you didn't think you were going to win in the middle of the game. Sometimes you thought you were going to get beat, and it hurt. You know, and you went through a lot of pain in the middle of the game. But you come out and when you won the game, all the pain was worth it. When we go through the trials with God, all the pain we go through on those trials is worth it when we come out on the other side in victory. So we count it joy. We count it joy when we go through these things because of the victory on the other side, not the pain, I've said this before. If you're, if you're rejoicing in the pain, there's something else wrong with you. <laughs> All right? But if you're rejoicing in what the pain will lead to, it is good. And that's what we're called to do. Rejoice in what is coming in victory. Cast off the bands of captivity. Verse 3 says, For thus saith the Lord, ye have sold yourself for naught, and you shall be redeemed without money. How cheap has, does mankind sell their self? You know, Adam and Eve sold themselves on the promise that they would be like God. 
And it wasn't even valid because God said, the day you eat of that fruit, you're going to die. And they believed the lies of Satan to try to be like God. How many lies do we believe from Satan as we go through our life? And we sell ourselves cheap and sell our victory cheap because of the lies we believe. How do we keep ourselves from believing the lies? We get to know the truth. Right now on our, on our PowerPoint, I don't know if anybody ever reads it, but we've got a power that's point on the, on the front that says, to, un, to be able to see the, the lie, you, you have to hold on to the truth. But if you hold on to the lie too long, you won't even be able to recognize the truth. We need to recognize the truth. We need to hold on to God's truth so much that when the lie presents itself, we know it's a lie. Adam and Eve given one rule. Well, Adam was given one rule. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The day you eat it, you will die. What did Eve say when Satan tempted her? She goes, we cannot eat of the fruit, nor can, shall, can we touch it, and we may die. All right? She had watered down the penalty. She had bought into a lie. All right? I believe that Adam was probably the one that taught her, told her, don't touch. <laughs> okay? You know, you know, Eve, I really, you know, we're not allowed to eat that, and by the way, we shouldn't even, we're not even supposed to touch it. Now, I don't know where the we, we may die part, uh, part came from. You know, I don't know if she added that or if Adam had, had lost it over time. That part I don't know. But the first part, I, I'm pretty sure Adam is the one that told her, you know, don't touch it. You know, loving her so much saying he expands upon the rules. <laughs> and then fortunately, over the years, churches have done just that. The Jews are real big on that. They keep making the laws bigger and bigger. And their logic is that way if you break the, the man-made law, you won't break God's law. All right? And I think it comes from that idea of what happened in the Garden of Eden. You know, if you don't, if you don't uh, touch it, you can't eat it. So they, they added two. And this is why we've got to be careful to stick to what God says about things and not be adding to them, not trying to expand upon them. His rules are hard enough to keep in the first place without us trying to add to them. But the church over the years has done this, and this happens in, in many churches. You know, there's many churches where they have a lot of unspoken rules. If you want to be a good Christian, you've got to do whatever their set of rules are. Okay? Back in the 40s and 50s, you didn't go to the movies, you didn't play cards, you, you didn't drink, and you didn't dance. All right? And if you did any of those things, you were a terrible Christian. If you did those kind of things, you were a good Christian. Uh, had not, they didn't really bring in the fact that you needed to know Jesus Christ and, and, him and his sacrifice and be, be saved by, by going to Jesus. They just said, do these rules. And we've got to be careful that we don't start even thinking that way because sometimes we can get into that pretty easy. Well, you know, God, I'm reading my Bible every day. I'm, getting my, I'm reading my Bible through every year. I go to church, uh, you know, Every Sunday and, and several times a week besides, besides that, whenever I can, I talk to some people once in a while, you know, once, once or twice a decade about you. Uh, I, pray, I pray several times a year, and we think we're doing okay. And we start putting a bunch of works out there. Verse 3, he said, you've sold yourself for nothing. All right? The whole idea of selling yourself in that day was you, went, you owed a debt, so you would say, you sell yourself to pay off a debt. And he says... Israel, you have sold yourself for nothing. You didn't, you weren't, you didn't owe a debt, and here you are selling yourself into slavery. You know, we do this all the time as human beings. You know, we owe a debt, unfortunately, to God, but we don't owe a debt to Satan. And Jesus paid our debt. So when people go into sin and reject God, they're selling themselves to, for nothing. They're selling themselves very cheap when they don't have to. When all they got to do is turn to God and say, God, I'm a sinner. I accept your gift and, and, and make, him so, make him Lord. And yet the world sells himself very cheap to Satan and sin. And then suffer because of it. Because when you're a slave, you get beat. You get, you get forced to work. Even if you don't get beat, you get forced to work. And you're working for free. And the wages of sin is death. And not just physical death, which is the ultimate end, 
Sin is a living death. Those of us who've had problems with certain sin know it's death. Some are worse than others. But you get done, you get done with that sin and you just feel guilty, you feel miserable, you feel beat up. And then some of them actually have physical consequences to those sins that you have to deal with. And God is saying, you're selling yourself cheap. And he says, you sold yourself cheap and I'm going to re redeem you without money. Now, just because it was out without money does not mean that it was cheap. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He paid the ultimate price to win us and redeem us. No money involved, but it cost him more than money. It would have been cheaper for him to have provided money because he could have just created all the gold and silver and gems and, and everything he wanted if he was going to buy us back with money. So even though we look at this and say, well, gee, this is kind of interesting. We sold ourselves for nothing, and he's going to buy us back without money? And that's how it was looked at in the Old Testament before Jesus died. But when Jesus buys us back, the price was high. And we need to keep this in remembrance all the time, just as we talked about during communion. Each time I talk about communion, the price of our salvation is extremely high. And when we don't give God his proper place in our life, we are really kind of spitting in his face. You know, I really don't think, I really don't think it was, you, you, you paid enough. You know, I, I know you lost your life. I know, I know you and the Father were separated. I know that you took all my sin, but, you know, I don't think you did enough. Now, none of us really believe that, but yet when we treat him so lightly, that's pretty much what we're saying. You, you, didn't, you didn't do enough for me, God. You know, and it's very important for us to get to this point where we say, you did everything. You did so much. I must be your servant. And this is what really will separate people who, you know, you, you might be able to get saved, and I, and I put this very loosely, you might be able to get saved without really turning your life over to God because it really is just faith. But what's the proof? As James says, what's the proof of your salvation if you don't go out there and live for him. All right? You may be saved, right? You know, somebody may be saved if they're not doing anything, but if you're not going to prove it to anybody, you know, God will know. But Jesus said, you know, they'll know you by your fruit, your love one for another. James says, you know, you, you say you have faith, show me your faith by your work, uh, without your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. All right? When you're walking with God, your faith sh shows that you are his. When you're sharing the gospel, you're, you're loving God, you're praying, you're, you're making the right decisions, you're showing the fruits that are of repentance. And if you just say a prayer, and you might have meant it, you might be saved, you might be going to heaven, but if you don't have any fruit that says you're going to heaven, you're not going to be able to prove it to anybody. The only one that really cares is God, but you know, you know what I'm saying. You, as you're walking around, people are going to look at you and say, and I hear it all, well, is that person saved? I go, I don't know. I can't tell you. Even works, even good works don't tell me somebody's saved. What really tells me that somebody's saved is when the Holy Spirit in them talks to the Holy Spirit in me, and I'm going, that person I think is saved. That person is walking with God, they're on fire, I can feel the Holy Spirit around them. And I've had this happen many times, and I've shared this, many times I'd go to some business meeting, and I didn't know who was a Christian, I'm going, God, I can't sit here around here with all these people drinking and and cursing and everything. I need some Christians. And before long, the Spirit would talk to us and we'd, be, we'd have a group of Christians gathered together, sitting in, you know, drinking our sodas and, and just having a good time. You know, because the Spirit knows who His people are. And when you meet those people, you're pretty sure you know who they are. You know, it doesn't take you long to know that somebody has that love, that care. And sometimes we meet people and go, wow, they're, they're doing a lot of good things, but I'm not seeing the spirit move out in them. I'm not feeling the spirit. And this is something that's important. He redeems us. And this word here is kinsman redeemer. He's the nearest kin we have that has the money to pay the price. We go to the story of Ruth and, and Boaz. He was the nearest kinman, kinsman that was willing to pay the price for their land and buy her back. Why can God be our 
Why can Jesus be our kinsman redeemer? Because he became flesh. God became flesh, which made him a kin of people, and then he died for us to pay that debt. What a beautiful picture that, that it is. He's our, he's our redeemer. He's our kinsman. He's, he's the nearest one that could pay the debt. Because no human being could pay the debt. You know, we owe a debt that we cannot pay because of sin. Because God's standard is perfection. And so we see here this whole thing of being redeemed. And verse 4 says, For thus saith the Lord God, My people went down aforetime into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrians oppressed them without cause. So this is kind of an interesting statement because he starts with Jacob and his family, 70 people going to Egypt to live. Leaves out the whole fact of the exodus and the, land, and the, and the staying in uh, the land of Canaan for about 1,200 years and jumps all the way to the Assyrians oppressing the people. You know, it's kind of an interesting place. He just jumps over time because God does not really recognize time. You know, you know, in Peter it says that a day to the Lord is a thousand years and a thousand years is, to the, to the, uh, is as a day to the Lord. That doesn't mean they're equal. It just means that he really doesn't care about time. He doesn't see time pass. He doesn't care about time except how it relates to us. We are in this world and God created time for man. God did not need time, but he made us in a physical world, and in a physical world, we need time to be able to operate. And there's going to come a time when we don't have time anymore. You know, when we're in heaven, the way we perceive time is going to be gone. Now, I've said this before. In Revelation, we're told that the tree of life in the new heaven and new earth produces fruit in its season. So there's some form of time in heaven. God's above that even. But we'll have some form of time, but it won't be what we're, what we're used to. What it'll be like, I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea what it's going to be like, but this fruit tree of life produces fruit in its seasons. All right? What that means, how long will a season be? 1,000 years, 2,000 years, 10,000 years? Who knows <laughs> from our perspective what that time will be? You know, and, uh, but he says, the, the Egyptians oppressed you and then the Assyrians oppressed you and he says the Assyrians oppressed you without cause this is one of the things that happened with Assyria God used Assyria to subject Israel the northern kingdom for their sin then he got mad at the Assyrians because of how brutal they were to the northern kingdom and said okay you are now paying the, you guys will pay the price because you not only just gave them their spanking, you really hurt them, you abused them, and now he judges Assyria. And he puts Babylon in their place. And, and Babylon initially is pretty bad, but Nebuchadnezzar gets converted and, you know, uh, into the, to following God, and it's not too bad. <laughs> They're still slaves. They're still in captivity for 70 years. But we see this process going on. Then in verse 5, it's interesting. Now therefore, what have I here, saith the Lord, that my people is taken away for naught? Okay, they sold themselves cheap. Why did they get sold into slavery? Because of their sin. And they kept sinning and they kept getting worse. They that rule over them make them to howl. All right? They're wailing. They're complaining. They're complaining to God all the time. Which the Lord says, saith the Lord, and my name continually every day is blasphemed. They were not just griping and complaining. They were blaming God. God, this is your fault. How could, you let this, how could God let this happen? I hear this from people all the time, especially the world. Bad things happen. They don't believe in God, supposedly. They don't believe God is running anything, but when bad things happen, you'll hear things like, why did God let this happen to me? And I really, if I was being in my flesh, I would say, why wouldn't God do this to you? Okay, you haven't, you haven't been obedient to him. You've been doing everything wrong. Why would you expect him to do anything less? But here is God saying, 
my people are complaining all the time and they're blaspheming my name all the time. We need to be careful of that. When we're going through hard times, it is very easy to blame God. You know, and whether we deserve it or not, you know, it's easy to blame God. And, but if God, if we truly, fully understand that God is sovereign, God is in control, God has everything in plans for me, I'm not going to blaspheme God. I'm going to say, okay, God, I might, I might tell God, like I've told you guys many times, God, I don't understand this, but I'm going to trust that you're in control and this, that it's going to work out for good. There's many times I've gone to God and said, God, I don't understand how any of this is going to turn out for good, but you've promised it that all things work together for good, so I am just going to hold on to that verse. I can't see it. I can't understand it, but I'm going to hold on to that verse. All things work together for good for those who are called according to the purpose of God. You know, I also hold on to God. You, you haven't lost control. You didn't fall asleep. <laughs> you didn't fall asleep at the wheel and lose control, so you are still at, knowing what's going on. All of these things can help us when we truly believe who God is when we go through the hard times. Okay, God, don't understand it, but you know a whole lot more than me, so I'm going to trust I'm going to accept that you know what you're doing. Is that easy to do? No. The more you do it, the easier it gets. It's like anything else. The more you do something, the easier it gets. If you're trying to learn how to do anything, and I'm going to pick sports because that's what I learned to do most of my life. The first time you tried to play any sport, you know, you're trying to catch the ball with a mitt and you usually hit you, get your nose hit or your body hit or you miss the ball and you have to go chase it. After a while, you get pretty good about not missing it, not, not missing it more often than, than you miss it. You know, if you're learning to knit, you're sitting there, okay, here we go, wrap this around here, go this, drop, you know, do this, and wrap this one around, and do this. And then when you get good at it, you're just you know, talking with people, not paying attention to what you're doing hardly. Uh, you know, when you're driving a car, I don't know how many of you remember when you first drove that stick shift for the very first time and you stopped the car every single time <laughs> for a long time. And then you got to where you weren't stalling the car, but you were always thinking, okay, shift, clutch shift, clutch shift, clutch shift, and after a couple months, you're just driving down the road, not even thinking about the shifting anymore. You're just doing it naturally. God is really wanting us to get to that point where we trust him so well that I'm not thinking about trusting him. You know, for a long time, these bracelets, you know, WWJD bracelets were very popular. What would Jesus do? And I go, I love the idea, but you really need to get to the place where you're not any longer thinking about what would Jesus do. You just do what Jesus would do without thinking it, thinking it out. It takes a while to get there, but you have to just keep practicing, keep doing, keep in his word so that it becomes second nature. You just do it. When you start learning to love people and be forgiving, it's very, very hard at first. You don't, it's not natural to love people. It's not natural to be forgiving. But the more we do it, the easier it gets. And it becomes second nature. And, it's more, and it then becomes to a place where it's rare not to be loving. It's rare not to forgive. So we look at this and he says, this is what I want. You're, you're blaspheming, but he says, verse 6, Therefore my people shall know my name. They, for, they shall know, the, the day in, that know in that day that I am he that does speak. Behold, it is I. They get to know God so well that they just know him. You know, and this is, this is the thing. It takes a long time to get there, and most of us will never get there. It gets better, it gets easier, but our desire is for us to do things just out of second nature. I, we do it without thinking. We forgive somebody just, just because. Is it easy to do? No, but we get to where we can make it easier and easier. We start loving people, we do it easier and easier, and the longer you walk with God and the more you're trying to change your life and let him change your life, the easier things get. And we start to let him be the one that changes us. 
Verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that brings good news, that publishes peace and brings good tidings of good, that publish salvation, that say unto Zion, the, your God reigns. Your watchmen shall lift up the voice with the voice together. Shall they sing for they shall see eye to eye when the Lord shall bring again Zion. Break forth un, into joy, sing together, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord hath comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord hath made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of God. This is powerful. This is powerful. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of them that bring good news. Do you realize that's talking about us as, as Christians? We bring good news to people. You know, yes, we have to, as we're witnessing, give them the bad news. You're a lost sinner headed to hell. All right? But that is not the point of our news. Our point of our news is, but God has a gift for you. For the wages of sin is death. And many people stop, when they're, stop at that point when they're witnessing to people. Huh, I got good news for you. You're, dying. you're, you're dead. <laughs> You've earned death. Well, yeah, we've earned death. But we have got to go into that but. But the gift of God is eternal life. This is the good news. We bring good news, not condemnation. Now, if they reject it, it's condemnation. But we bring good news, and I love this, that publish, proclaim peace. You know, this, is, this is the message of the good news. God has a gift for you, and it leads to peace. It leads to that perfect rest, knowing that I am right with God and going to heaven. And there is great peace knowing that. Because no matter what happens, I'm his. And it has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with God. And when God says it, it's true. He's given me a gift. I've accepted that gift. And he says, you are mine. And the good news about that is, he is not an Indian giver. When he gives you eternal life, it's there. He doesn't say, well, you don't deserve it anymore. We never deserved it in the first place. All right? And this is critical. This, if we really start grabbing, getting hold of the idea that we do not deserve our salvation... It makes it a lot easier for us to deal with others that don't deserve salvation either. Because I don't deserve it? Well, let's give you, let's give you the same gift I got. God gave me a gift that I didn't deserve. Let's, let's see if you'll accept the gift and, and get what you don't deserve. And the good news for us is that we don't have to be perfect once we get saved. Because we can't be. We can't be perfect before we're saved and we cannot be perfect after we're saved. When he comes in and dwells with us, he will start sanctifying us. We will become more and more perfect before God in our walk. But we're never going to get perfect in this lifetime. We might get more loving, more, more forgiving, more, more uh, obedient to God, but we're never going to get perfect. And I think God does that on purpose for us so that we won't get judgmental of those who aren't at the same place because we already have a hard enough time. You know, we get, we get uh, sanctified and we start thinking, you know, how good we are and then we start looking down on people. We've got to be careful. We cannot be looking down on people because we don't deserve what we've got. And we would have nothing without God. We wouldn't be as perfect as we are without God testing us and putting us, in, putting us there in the first place. And it says, these people publish peace. They bring good news and they publish salvation, the rescue. How many people do we share the gospel with? Or are we undercover Christians? We never share the word with anybody. You know, people need to know we're Christians. They need to know that God is salvation and not try to hide it. But I love this when he says that they say unto Zion, your God reigns. God reigns reigns. Even when it looks like he, everything is out of control, we know that God reigns. 
And this is important for us. Because if God is not reigning, then we have no, we, we have no hope. If God is not completely in charge and sovereign, we have no hope because he cannot promise anything if he's not in charge. He is in charge. Satan is on a leash. Satan has to ask for permission to do anything. Now, God gives him a lot more freedom than we would like him to have, but he still has to go before God and say, God, you know, I'd love to do this, but you, won't, you just won't let me. And God reigns. He is in charge. And the more we realize that, the easier life is for us. Bad things happen to you. Okay, God, you're in charge. I don't know why you're doing it, but you're in charge. I'm just going to accept it. And maybe he'll show us what it, why. Sometimes he will, sometimes he won't. When we get to heaven, he'll show us what it, what it was for. He'll show us how it all fit together in our life and the life of the people that we're around. Sometimes we suffer so that others can see us stay, stay firm for God. Sometimes we suffer just because we deserve to be suffering. Sometimes it's for an example. Sometimes it's just to teach us a lesson. It may just be a simple thing of, do you trust me? God will say, do you trust me? In spite of what you're going through, do you trust me for our growth? We don't always know why we're suffering. And as I said, when we suffer, our first thing is, look, God, have I done something? Do I deserve it? Okay, God, yes. God, forgive me. I repent. And then we suffer for our, through our consequences. If we really can't see something off the top of our head that causes us to suffer, then we go, okay, God, what am I supposed to learn from this? Am I learning patience? Am I learning to trust you? Is it for somebody else to see? God, just make me patient. Thank you for feeling that I'm a good enough servant to test this way. He tests all of us, you know. And then sometimes we fail and we walk away from him. Sometimes we pass it. Sometimes we go through a hard time and we kind of fall away from him a little bit. And God says, okay, let's get you back where you belong and now we'll get you, give you the test again. As we go on, this verse 8 it says, Your watchmen will lift up their voices. Together they shall sing, for, for they shall see eye to eye when the Lord shall bring again Zion. Watchmen. God calls us to be watchmen, which means to look over. The watchmen on the city walls were to look for the enemy coming. And when they saw that enemy, they were to sound the warning. In our world, it is tough to be the watchman. The world does not like to hear the warning. The enemy's coming. Wake up. Get, get on guard. The church doesn't like to hear the warnings anymore in, in, in most cases. The church is, in general is so carnal that they don't want to hear the warning sounds of the enemy coming. We need to be those warning calls. When we get into the word and God says, here is truth, grab hold of it. Don't reject it. Be the person who's calling, calling forth. Then I love it. Break forth into joy. Sing together, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. God has comfort for us. He wants us to be comforted. He does not want us stressed out. He does not want us having a hard time. He, now, he knows that our trials may stress us out if we're not dependent on him. But when we depend on him, we can go through trials without even knowing we're going through them. My, my example is Peter walking on the water. In the middle of a storm, he walks out because Jesus said, come. And he was walking on the water until he looked around and saw the wind and the waves and realized that, hey, I can't walk on water. And it probably started with, what am I doing out here in the middle of the storm in the first place? And then he's going, hold it, I'm walking on water. I can't do that either. All right. The more he learned, looked at his circumstances, the more he realized he couldn't be doing what he's doing. It is wonderful to be looking at God and walking on the water, walking in the midst of the storm without having the storm affect us, walking through the midst of the river or the, or, the, or the sea because God has split it wide open. Watching God do mighty works is so much fun to see how he delivers his people and how he moves forward with his people. And God does mighty things for us. Why? Because he loves us. You know, loves us so much he redeemed us. Paid a price that we couldn't pay so that we could be redeemed and says, here's how much I love you. 
Then he puts his arms around us, drags us around with him, keeps us protected. And when do we get in trouble? When we look at the circumstances and walk away from him. God, I really don't need you to be my fortress and, and, and shield right now. I, I think I'll go step outside the door, door in the middle of this storm and battle and, and I'll be okay. And then we drag ourselves back into the fortress, knock very feebly at the door and say, please let me back in. And he's right there to bring us back in. But there's also consequences for those kind of decisions. And we'll go through long consequences. People get saved and then they walk away from God for years and decades and then wonder why their life is a mess. Finally get back to coming to God and going, oh, this is so much better. But those years of, of walking away from God have, have results to them. They have consequences that have to be lived, lived through. Even when you're walking with God, you're going to have consequences when you walk away from him. And have consequences because sin always has consequences. Some consequences are very small. Some of them are huge. And we always get more consequence than we expect. God, I just walked outside the storm. Why did I get beat up, blown into the, blown into the cactus bush and, and have all these cuts and bruises all over me? And, you know, and, and, and the enemy came swooping down on me and beat me with clubs. You know, all I did was step outside the, outside the door. And God says, well, you should have stayed inside the door. <laughs> and so it says... I love this verse 10. The Lord hath made bare his holy arm in the eyes of the nations, and all the urns of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. What does this mean? He's prepared himself for battle. He's showing off. He says, okay, we're getting, we're getting ready to fight. I'm pulling up my sleeves and making sure I'm ready to fight. Nothing's getting in the way. And the whole world sees this. God, ready to fight for us. You know, you can picture it just like that. You know, two guys are getting up there and they strip off their shirts. Okay, I'm ready to, we're ready to fight. <laughs> okay, this is, this is the picture here. He's pulled up his sleeves, he's bared his arms, and he goes, okay, I'm ready to defend my people. All right? You know, and it, we kind of laugh about it, but this really is the picture that God's doing. No, it's, it's Yeah. You know, that's our God. Saying, okay, who, who, who's going to stand up with me? Who's going to stand toe to toe with me? God's saying, you know, I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready. Who, who, who's, who's the challenger? And, and the challenger is wimpy Satan. You know, Genesis, uh, Genesis, Revelation tells us that when he, Satan stands at the white throne judgment, the world is going to look at him and say, this is who we were afraid of? This? I don't know what, that, what the, this looks like, but they're going to be looking at him and saying, this little wimpy, wimpy thing, the man behind the curtain, if you, if you understand the thing from Wizard of Oz, you know, ignore the man behind the curtain, don't, don't pay attention to him. This is the picture we have for Satan. The man behind the curtain making all the bluster out front. And when the curtain is pulled back, the world's going to look at him and saying, we were afraid of that. This is what bothered the nations, you know, especially when compared to God. So we look at this and, and say, God is ready to fight for us. You know, and he is our salvation. When he stands to fight, he will win. Always. Matter of fact, he doesn't even stand to win, but, but when, definitely when he stands to fight, he is going to win. And he's never lost a battle yet. He's been around a long time and he hasn't lost a battle. And never will. <laughs> you know, Satan is still hoping that he's going to somehow beat God someday, somehow. But God's not going to lose. He hasn't lost for all of eternity and never will. All right. I'm going to try to finish this up real quick. Verse 11. Depart you, depart you. Go you out from thence. Touch no unclean thing. Go you out of the midst of her. Be you clean that bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out in haste, nor by flight, for the Lord will go before you, and the Lord and the God of Israel shall be your rear reward. Behold, your servant shall deal prudently, he shall be exalted and extolled, he shall and be very high. As many as and as many were astonished, 
at you. His vestige was so marred before more than any man and his form more than any of the sons of man. So shall he sprinkle many nations and kings shall shut their mouths at him. For that which hath not been told them shall see, shall they see, and that which they had not heard shall they consider. So here we see God saying, depart, depart, again, repeated, <laughs> pay, uh, pay, pay attention, departing, all right, turn aside, turn aside from what you're doing. So this is his call to us, turn away from what you are doing that's wrong. This is where we really truly prove who we, are, who we are in Christ. We repent. And repent is to turn around and go back to God. We're going in one direction. We do a U-turn and come back to God. So he says, depart. Go you no, not that way. Touch no unclean thing. Come out of the midst of her and be clean. How many times do we as Christians play around with sin? Well, you know, God, I haven't quite crossed the line. I'm, I'm here playing with it. Uh, I'm thinking about the sin. Haven't done it yet. And God's saying, no, you're, you're playing games. Don't do it. It's critical for us to understand we are to stay as far from sin as possible. And I've shared this many, many people ask me, you go, well, can I do such and such? My answer is very, very clear. If you're questioning whether you can do it, you can't do it. We have liberty to do anything that we have perfect peace at. So you can do anything as long as you don't have any doubt that it's right. But as soon as you doubt whether it's right, you can't do it. All right? And it doesn't matter what it is. There are people out there that smoke that are not sinning because they have no doubt at all in their mind that it's, that it's okay. But if they have any, mo any thought in their mind that it may not be right, they shouldn't be doing it. All right? And this can go with any sin, anything out there. There, there are things that are definitely sin. You shall not lie. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit fornication. You, know, you shall not steal. You, you, know, there's, you shall not use the name of the Lord in vain. There are a lot of thou shalt nots. But anything outside of those that are in those gray areas that aren't aren't a thou shalt not, you have to go through and say, God, is this right or wrong? And if he says, if you have any doubt on whether it's right, don't do it. It's sin for you. And that can go anything from drinking, smoking, gambling, any number of things that go on out there. If you have a doubt on whether it's right or not, you can't do it. All right? Don't let other people cause that doubt, but don't. But if you have a doubt on whether it's right or wrong, don't do it. You read in the Bible and God tells you that it's wrong, don't do it. Doesn't matter whether everybody else can do it or not, you can't. All right? I can't go out and drink. Number one, I know it would be bad for me with my, with my uh, personality. I'm very compulsive. I wouldn't stop at one drink. And I know that I wouldn't. And my family for generations were drunks. So I know that I could not drink. I know my personality. As a pastor, I don't want to drink anyway. But I don't want to be drinking just because. Now, can somebody else drink and not have a problem? The only thing the Bible says is do not be drunk. Now, most people can't drink and not get, you know, and stop. But if you're one of those people that can take one drink uh, and that's it, and, you don't, and, you're not, and God's not saying don't, don't do it, it's okay. But be very careful. Because if you're leading somebody down the wrong path, it could be wrong as well. Which is why, as a pastor, I couldn't do that. Because I don't want anybody to say, well, pastor did it, so I can do it. No, pastor's not going to be drinking. He's not going to have anybody go, be, go become a drunk because they saw him drink. So these are the things that come in. He says, be clean, because we are the vessels of the Lord. He dwells in us, so we need to be clean. And it says, we shall not go out in haste, nor by flight, for God goes with us. We will be victorious because of God. He dwells in us. We will be victorious as long as we keep hold of him. And this is really important. And God of Israel will be your rear, your rear reward, which means your rear guard. He protects your back and your front 
and your sides and above and below. He covers us all the way. He is a perfect protection because we hide in him and he is our complete fortress. And then verse 13 says, Behold, your servant, and we're talking about Jesus here, shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Jesus is the greatest person who has ever lived because he was the God-man. He was God. And then we know it was Jesus because verse 14 said, And many were astonished or amazed, awestruck at you. Your vestige was so marred more than any man and his form more than any of the sons of man. Jesus took the beating that the entire world deserved for sin. They scourged him. That's bad enough. And the Roman scourging was terrible. They did not stop. They had one rule for the Roman soldiers, and that was to not kill the person they were scourging. Other than that, they can beat him as long as they wanted. Beat him into unconsciousness. And they had these nice little whips that would take huge chunks of, of muscle and skin and everything out with every strike. That was what they did. Their, their goal was to cause as much pain as possible. And if that wasn't enough, we read in the scriptures that they put a bag over Jesus' head and punched on him and said, tell us who hit you. And if you've ever been hit on a surprise, those hurt more than knowing that the blow is coming. All right? And then knowing that the blow is coming and not being able to see it would be bad. So they beat him to a pulp. They used with their fist, they beat his face to a pulp. They, they were told in another place in Isaiah, they pulled the beard out of his face. They beat him with the scourging. And when all of that was done, they made him carry a cross, probably 150 to 200 pounds, up the streets after a beating of that nature to be nailed to it. And not a nice, smooth cross like we think of, but rough, hard wood that would drive splinters into him every time he moved on that cross. And to get a breath, he had to move on the cross. To get a breath, he would have to push up against his feet with the nail, against the nails in his feet to get high enough up to be able to draw in a breath. And then, because of the pain in his feet, because it also hit a nerve bundle, because they were really good at, at putting these in, he would collapse back down, and his back would scrape against the cross, driving splinters in it, until he had to drill, breathe again. This is what Jesus went through for us. An absolute beating and sorrow to the point that he was not recognizable anymore. He was so swollen, so, so beat, that people looked at it and go, is this a man on the cross? Most people were just hung on a cross. They weren't beat before they were on the cross. Uh, they just hung on the cross. They were usually would hang there for a week or two before they would die. Most of them weren't even nailed to the cross. They were just hung there with ropes. Nails were reserved for the most violent and awful of criminals. Jesus was beat, both with the whips and physically, and then he was put on the worst form of cross execution by being nailed to it, all because we deserved the punishment. And he never called out to the Father for help. You know, love kept him on the cross. He went to the cross for us, and love kept him there. Because what did he tell Caesar? I can call ten legions of angels to rescue me. You have no power over me. I, if I wanted to get out of this, I could call my army and you wouldn't, be able to stop, you wouldn't be able to stop them. And yet he went to the cross willingly for us with great suffering. And then it goes in verse 15. So, so shall he sprinkle many nations. The sprinkling of blood sanctified. In the book of Leviticus, when they... When they created all the instruments of the tabernacle. They sprinkled the blood of the sacrifice on all of these instruments. They sprinkled the blood on the mercy seat. They sprinkled the blood on the altar of incense. They sprinkled the blood on the showbread. They, you know, everywhere they went, they sprinkled the blood for sanctification. 
the priest had blood sprinkled on them to show that they were sanctified. That's the same word. Jesus took his blood and sprinkled it on the world for sanctification. And it says, The king shall shut their mouths at him for, for that which has not been told them shall they see and that which they have not heard shall they consider. God reveals himself to mankind. All the Gentiles and you know, the kings of the world is a big deal. The Jews did not believe in the Gentiles being accepted by God. As far as they were concerned, and it has been said by more than one rabbi, Gentiles were created by God to go to hell. That's how they looked at Gentiles. No. No, that's how the Jewish rabbis looked at it. They were, we are Jews, the rest of the world are going to hell. Now, God, so many places, especially in Isaiah, said that God was going to redeem the Gentiles. Thankfully for us who are Jews, God redeemed us. Jesus died for us so that we could go to heaven. And for the Jews as well. The Jews don't go to heaven just because they're Jews. They have to accept God, just like we do. They have to accept God. You know, they don't go to heaven just because they're a Jew. Just as a Christian, you know, I'm born into a good, strong Christian family, doesn't get, automatically get me into heaven. I love it when I'm witnessing to somebody, and, you know, are you a Christian? Of course I am. Grandpa was a pastor. <laughs> okay, I'm really glad your grandpa was a pastor, but what does that have to do with you? All right? And God has no grandchildren. He only has children. All right? We all have to make decisions for him individually. So we want to keep this in mind, and this is that beautiful picture. He died for us. He took the beating for us. And so that we could go to heaven by accepting him. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love us. We thank you for how much you care for us. Help us always to keep your death for us, to pay for our sins in mind so that we can stay humbled at the great cost of our salvation. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.